0: This picture is about the transistor. These tiny transistors are destined to play a big part in our electronic age. Big part in our electronic
1: age. Part of today's press conference is being relayed by the Telstar communication satellite to viewers across the Atlantic, and uh, this is another indication of the extraordinary world in which we live. People on the go. Busy people moving, working, but some of them still able to keep in touch by telephone with business partners, customers, family, friends, even while they're on the road. The thing about Unix is the ability that we have to create complicated programs by building them out of simpler programs. Cell phone networks, Unix code
0: solar panels, information theory, the first communication satellite. What if I told you that there was one place that invented all of those things and more, much, much more. One place that was the technological Big Bang for modern communications.
1: But The improvement of communications never stops at Bell Telephone Laboratories.
0: Welcome to Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions from History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell. Welcome to the show. Today, we are talking about Bell Labs. What is Bell Labs? I hear you cry. Well, it's hardly a household name. And yet in its heyday, Bell Labs in America was pumping out world changing innovations and ideas. But what was the secret? of its success and what was its history what was bell labs well my guest today is john gertner author of the idea factory bell labs and the great age of american innovation enjoy with John Gertner. Welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you with us, joining us from early morning in New Jersey in the sweltering heat.
1: Yeah. Hi, Dallas. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm really enjoying your book. I'm holding it up to the camera. Nice cover as well, by the way. (laughs) The Idea Factory, Bell Labs and the Great Age of American Innovation. Hey, listen, are you writing a
1: book about Voyager
0: at the moment as well?
1: I am. And uh, it's actually a very exciting process. You know, you get to go to NASA and talk with all these wonderful scientists who have worked on the Voyager mission. So it's it's been really interesting.
0: Have you talked to John Cassani?
1: Yeah, I met with John. John's a good guy. Um, John invited me to his 90th birthday party. I think I'm going to go there in September. You
0: should. He's got a very nice house. I went to his house a while ago because I made a documentary with Chris Riley about Voyager for the BBC. I'll have to watch that. Have you not watched it?
1: Is it farther?
0: Is it that one? No, no, no. It was the one before, Voyages to the Final Frontier. I actually became aware of Bell Labs through Apollo and the American space story, really, in terms of stuff that they developed kind of crept into the story. So I've always been really interested in Bell Labs. But I don't think, certainly in the UK, I don't think it's a widely known place. Let's start right at the beginning. For those who don't know what Bell Labs was, what is it? And why is it interesting?
1: Well, the very short answer, is that it was maybe, probably, arguably, the greatest sort of research and development lab of the 20th century. I don't think that's an American-centric view of it, because really the technologies that came out of Bell Labs were cellular phone systems, the transistor, which is really the building block of all digital products. The theory of the laser came out of Bell Labs, as well as a variety of different kinds of lasers. The idea of telecommunication satellites was first tested at Bell Labs. And, uh, you know, there are all these other sort of theoretical things that came out of there. Now, Bell Labs was actually a part of the phone company. I guess the analog would be early British Telecom if they had their R&D lab. Bell Labs was the adjacent laboratory to American Telephone and Telegraph, which was the monopoly phone company that really ran the system in the United States from the early part of the 1900s until it was broken up in favor of more competition and different private companies in the early 1980s. So this is AT&T. AT&T. And if we went back, right, AT&T of today is sort of different because yeah. AT&T kind of broke apart and different pieces got back together. But if we really go back to the early part of the 1900s, you know, AT&T was the biggest company actually in the world by employees, by stock valuation by actual profits and uh, revenues. And by the 1920s, it had been kind of officially awarded control over the entire phone system of running it and developing it in the United States. And in 1925, people who ran the phone company, who ran AT&T, decided to create this sort of standalone R&D lab, Bell Telephone Laboratories, or Bell Labs. And this was gonna plan the future of communications. The last point I guess I'd make is, Because Bell Labs was attached to the biggest company in the world, there were tremendous resources to fund it. So it was a kind of R&D lab that was larger in scale and ambition than any other one that had come before. You know, German pharmaceutical labs had kind of set this model up in the 1800s. Bell Labs was doing it in a bigger way, in a more ambitious way, and they were part of a monopoly, so they didn't really have any competition. They could work on things for years and years and years to develop new products.
0: It does seem like a very American thing. I guess at that sort of time, in the sort of nineteen thirty mean, the Europeans were doing big physics and lots of science and exciting things, and America, mm. the Americans weren't doing that really. It seems much more focused on innovation and developing technology. Is that fair?
1: No, it's a great point. I mean, I spent a lot of years in the archives of Bell Labs and AT and T, and there were always these constant trips back and forth to Europe, to London, to Scotland, to visit with scientists and the physicists and sort of keep the people in New York and in the US informed of the latest sort of developments in physics. But that's right, at least at the beginning, at least until I guess, Bell Labs kind of, or the Americans caught up in theory, you might say, they were very good at taking ideas or discoveries and really like applying them, mm-hmm. I guess, what we would call, you know, sort of applied research and making them into products and technologies. Yeah. It's interesting, actually, because a
0: lot of your book, I mean, obviously, you're going through the history of Bell Labs and the people involved in it, but it's also very much a book and a story about how innovation works, which I, I'm fascinated by. And it's one of these things we keep coming back to on this podcast. There's a lovely line, actually, in your opening sort of a couple of pages, which sort of sums it up. And it says, it was where the future, which is what we now happen to call the present, was conceived and designed. I love that. I'm going to steal that. Sure. Often. I think it's a really nice line. It's funny, actually, because you've got AT&T, biggest company in the world. Obviously, the telephone is still a relatively new invention by Alexander Graham Bell. Why did they suddenly think, okay, we need to get into R&D, we need to... What was the sort of motivation to create this kind of ideas factory?
1: I mean, you put your finger on a paradox of the place. It was part of this big, conservative, profit-driven sort of service company. Hmm. So why would it be so innovative? Why would sort of the great inventions and innovations of the 20th century come out of this lab? I think the short answer is it comes down to the people who are working there, who sort of looked at the resources they had, And looked at what they could achieve and felt a sense of ambition and I guess you could even say possibly obligation to sort of push forward. So that's one part of the answer. And I think the second part of the answer is when you're creating a system from scratch, a continent wide and eventually a global kind of network of they called it a system rather than a network in that era of communications, The problems you encountered were tremendous. And they'd really, some of them had never been solved before. And you couldn't just kind of use the old technologies or the old ideas to go ahead. They had to come up with new ideas.
0: So the idea was, you know, essentially, we need to make the telephone system better. And how are we going to do it? So they collected all these great minds, these wonderful people together, Mm -hmm. and sort of let them loose in this campus. The obvious parallels where we are today with kind of Google and Silicon Valley. So this was a sort of a predecessor of modern big tech. Is that fair?
1: Almost. I mean, it's true that the goal was to make the phone system better, but the mantra Bell Labs was to make it better and cheaper. And I think the second part is quite crucial because what innovation does is it sort of democratizes and makes accessible new technologies. Yeah. I mean, we might think of, well, what if an iPhone cost $10,000? Would it really have made much of a difference in society? No. So, the idea again was to bring these technologies to kind of a mass audience and to make instantaneous you know, first analog communication, then digital communication, really just kind of as easy and cheap as anything else in the West talking.
0: That's one of the key mantras, isn't it, of innovation, of the difference between innovation. Actually, when we talk about people like Edison, it comes down to money. It comes down to practicalities. Good ideas are just good ideas. But actually, when you start to make them practical and cheaper and easier to use, and then suddenly they become much more ubiquitous and Valuable, I suppose. So a little bit of Bell history. ATT, so what year are we talking about when it was set up? So 1930s. Are we in the 1930s or later?
1: We might put it at around 1910, 1912, when it became sort of the monopoly phone system in the United States. Bell Labs was created a little bit later. Again, this was a laboratory that was nested inside this larger company. And Bell Labs' origin date was 1925. You've mentioned a
0: couple of things. You mentioned the solar panel came from there. It's just ridiculous, actually, the stuff that came out of Bell Labs. So let's do a little rundown. I've got things like the very first Calculator, I think it was the Model K adder, 1930-something.
1: Yeah, there were early adding machines and computers out of Bell Labs. You know, there's a lot of discussion over who had the first one, but Bell Labs was right there in the running, some of the early ones. This
0: is a proper digital sort of adding machine. And of course, right. you mentioned the very first transistor, the building block of all modern electronics, I suppose. So beyond anything else, that is the thing that absolutely changed the world. So for those listeners who you know will have heard the word transistor but aren't entirely sure what a transistor is and what it does, perhaps you could fill us in.
1: Sure. I mean, in the US, of course, in that early part of the first half of the 20th century, the way you got a phone call from coast to coast was you had to amplify it periodically. One problem with phone calls or phone signals is that they're weak. And And they degrade over. Yeah, they attenuate, exactly. And so from an early point on, you know, the phone company became very expert at building these things. They called them repeater tubes or vacuum tubes, really. In England, they were called valves. And there was always a sense at Bell Labs that there was a problem with vacuum tubes. You know, they were kind of bulky. They used tremendous amounts of energy, uh, electricity to run. And there was a sort of sense that maybe they could come up with something better to replace the vacuum tube. And this dates back to really the 1930s to a fellow who's really a large character in my book named Mervyn Kelly. And really, it was during the war, during World War II, when people at Bell Labs, as well as in Europe as well, started working with this new class of materials called semiconductors. And they're working with silicon and germanium, and they made great strides, especially with radar. But right after the war, some of the leaders at Bell Labs wondered, maybe we can use some of these materials to actually create a new sort of amplifier Mm -hmm. or a new sort of switch. Because the kind of two crucial elements of the phone system were transmission. How do you get a call from place to place? And if you're going a really long distance, you really had to amplify it periodically to push it farther and farther, kind of like you're kicking a ball down the football field. The other aspect would be switching, because you had to connect everybody to everybody else. So you needed these kind of very fast switches They were these kind of clunky electromagnetic switches. They were these huge switchboards in every city. They clicked on, they clicked off, they connected everybody to everybody else.
0: Women plugging things into holes.
1: Well, that's right. In those very early days, it was even manual and then became kind of automated, but it was still rather slow because if you think about a part that had to kind of actually click and move and they were electromagnetic and they were slow and they were cost intensive because you needed millions of them in the phone system. So is there some kind of, Part some sort of maybe special material that could actually internally you know atomically molecularly sort of either switch calls or amplify phone calls and this was this kind of focus in bell labs right after the war and Mervin kelly the leader of bell labs handpicked a few of his best scientists um, they became known as the solid state team and really over the course of a couple of years they started focusing on germanium today almost all semiconductors are silicon And after a few years, they finally came up with a tiny piece of metal. It was about a third of the size of a fingernail. And they found that it could actually switch calls or switch signals instantaneously, but it could also amplify phone calls. And it was this very tiny, very miraculous sort of breakthrough that hastened the way for, I guess we could say, the the microelectronics revolution. Suddenly, electronics could have very, very small parts and change the world that way.
0: Was there kind of an exact moment when they thought, it works? Was there a kind of, I hate to use the Eureka moment?
1: Well, thankfully, as a writer, there was. You Good. Know? <laughs> we love those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we do. So there was. Um, I mean, what you had was two years of failure, because when we're talking about innovation, we're often talking about failure. Does this work? No, it doesn't work. You know, oh, we have high hopes for this.
0: Yeah. How many times did Edison test things for his filament?
1: Like 6,000 different materials, all of which failed, and then he got the right one. Exactly. And one difference between what Bell Labs was doing and what Edison was doing, or that they like to say, was that they weren't doing the same process of like, let's try something, let's try something else. They were trying to use theory, for instance, to try and guide what kinds of applications they would use. But what eventually happened after all these sort of moments of failure was in 1947, and late 1947, they had kind of narrowed down this certain approach. And I, I won't go into it. It's a little technical.
0: Actually, when we're looking for Eureka moments, there's that line in your book where you talk about Bill Gates inventing a time machine and wanting to go back to November 1947.
1: That's right. The solid state team is making incremental steps towards making an amplifier, which they also think can function as a sort of switch. So if it works, it'll be this essential, essential element of a new revised phone system and new and improved, better, maybe cheaper. And really, by the mid-part of December 1947, they've kind of found that they can use a slightly impure, tiny piece of germanium, and they can run a phone signal through it, and they can amplify it, uh, I think, 17 or 18 times. And they can also switch it on and off really quick. And they give a demonstration the day before Christmas Eve for the bosses. And uh, they realize that they have something that's actually, as I think the head of research put it, something that 's actually new in the world, yeah. um, that had never existed before it 's this sort of wonderful moment. they think they know what they have, but you know whether it would revolutionize the world the way it has that was something sort of beyond that again, remember these are scientists and engineers who are within the confines of a lab, and the idea of say an iphone or or a laptop computer or or whatever it might be is is sort of almost inconceivable. but again, what they understand is that. This sort of harkens in an era of tiny electronic devices where you don't need these big vacuum tubes. You suddenly kind of open a whole new world of tiny devices.
0: How much of a tyrant really was Julius Caesar? Would we have ever stood a chance against the first dinosaurs? And did Helen of Troy really have the power to launch a thousand ships? Well, you can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit. Join us twice a week, every week, as we explore some of the greatest moments of our ancient past. Subscribe to the Ancients wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into Bill Gates' time machine and just whiz back. I'm sort of interested to know what what life was like kind of on this campus, because it was a campus, a bit like the kind of Google campus. I'm sure you might have been to these big campuses. I've been to these big campuses. What was life like that? And who were the main players? You you mentioned a couple.
1: Sure. I mean, I actually personally grew up kind of not far from the main lab. And Bill Labs was started in New York City. It moved to the New Jersey suburbs and to this campus you described, which is hundreds of acres. And beautiful leafy trees and brick buildings that the scientists and engineers could work, you know, without disturbance in this kind of bucolic setting. And, you know, in some ways, I think it was the template for this sort of suburban office park. It was a kind of, I think we might even say it was sort of university-like. I mean, back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, you literally had many of the smartest people in the world working together here. And, you know, Bell Labs at that point, especially in the 50s and 60s, had a reputation of you know winning Nobel Prizes and really leading in physics and engineering. So they could recruit people not just from you know American colleges, but all over Europe and Asia as well. And really, they gravitated to this one place. So, you know, there would be almost the equivalent, I think, of what we might call intellectual salons. And lunchtime at Bell Labs in the cafeteria was sort of this incredible exchange of ideas where different people from different disciplines would sort of discuss certainly science, but also any problems that they might be working on at that moment. And I think one thing that probably is crucial to understanding Bell Labs, and maybe I think is representative of sort of how innovation has worked since then, is that early on, I think the people who are managing this place believe that the problems that had to be solved by this company and by sort of modern electronics companies in general would only yield to people of different disciplines working together which sounds sort of obvious now but that good ideas came you know not from getting a bunch of physicists together in a room but what you really wanted was you know engineers physicists chemists all these people working together and sometimes having tension between each other and that's how new ideas got solved
0: who were the kind of main characters you mentioned a couple of names but who were the kind of big players particularly the kind of solid state group who were responsible for the transistor? Because that, to me, you know, looking at the book and looking at some of them, they're not household names, and they they should be household names, really, given what they did.
1: Yeah, some of them had become household names, and, and many of them just sort of lived in obscurity and have have been forgotten. I mean, there was a certain kind of class of people, I call them the managers, and they were people like Mervyn Kelly and Jim Fisk. They were very, very capable people managing ideas. But the sort of more, I guess, we could say colorful characters are William Shockley, who was really the head of the transistor team and um, had all sorts of awful ideas about race and intelligence, but really was just an absolutely brilliant physicist with, as many people I interviewed told me, had the quickest mind they'd ever encountered, somebody who was just instantaneously brilliant. Mm. And another person of that era who didn't work on the transistor team was working more in the area of theory and digital communications was somebody named Claude Shannon, and I think Shannon was a kind of true eccentric. I mean, he would he would ride a unicycle up and down the hallways while smoking cigarettes and juggling. At the same time, he loved building machines that would do nothing. There's a word for those kind of machines. Oh, oh sure, what sure. Are they called? Uh, which flew out of my head. Uh, yes. Shannon actually at one point built a, a box that you turned a switch on. The top of the box opened. A hand came out it turned the switch off and then the hand went back in the box. Shannon was the first to do that. Oh, there you go. So that comes from Bell Labs. Actually, there's another
0: weird thing I found in Bell Labs in my Bell Lab research. Apollo 12, Mm -hmm. they got some New York artists, Andy Warhol, Robert Rauschenberg, a bunch of these kind of New York artists of the 1960s, and they got them to do little doodles on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And Bell Labs shrunk it down into this tiny kind of silicon wafer thing, which they put aboard Apollo 12. And so there's all this art on the moon. I think they did it in secret. It
1: sounds like a Bell Labs thing,
0: yeah. It just sounds like one of those kind of like slightly eccentric things that they did. And actually, you know, we talk about these successes from Bell Labs, the transistor, the solar panel, the satellite, all these things. Quite a lot of failure as well. One of the things that marks out innovation is you need to have time to fail. And there were lots of things that went wrong. I think it was the picture phone. There were an early example of, well, let's have a video phone in the 1960s that really kind of didn't catch on and cost certainly millions to not work properly.
1: Yeah, no, very much so. I mean, there were these private, I think, sort of more predictable failures when you're working on something difficult and you're kind of engaging in failure and learning from it and trying to still solve the problem. And then there were, like you pointed out, these big corporate failures. Okay, this company was supposed to kind of create the future of communications. So what is the future of communications? And in 1960s, they decided, and it was unveiled at the World's Fair and all this, that the the real way everybody was going to talk to each other was through video phone or picture phone, as as you put it. It makes sense. It totally makes sense. Yeah. I mean, they were right and they were wrong. I mean, they were right in the sense that as, as you and I are now talking to each other on laptops, it was the future. But, you know, they were way too early, you know, 40 years too early. So the technology just wasn't there in order to make it work properly. It was that why they were too early. I think that's a fundamental reason. And then there's this sort of ancillary reason, which is that I don't think society was ready. No. Did people want to be seen in the same way? And they really didn't. You know, if you had your hair mussed up in the morning or you were in curlers or you just didn't want to look at somebody or have somebody look at you, uh, it was too foreign and too strange. Yeah.
0: It's funny, actually, because when I was a kid in the 70s, everyone was talking about picture phones. It was going to be the future. If you look at any kind of book about the future from the 1970s or 1980s, there's always people staring into into video phones. I think actually Charles and Ray Eames, the great designers made lots of films about technology. And I remember they made one about
1: picture phones. And so it was always there in the, in the yeah, kind of zeitgeist. Sure. And you see in like 2001, like Stanley Kubrick's film. And I think Kubrick actually, and, and for 2001, Arthur Clarke had come to Bell Labs, you know, science fiction writer to sort of take a look and say, okay, what are the technologies of the future going to be? Do you think that you know
0: Bell Labs sort of post-war really became the template for modern innovation now for companies you know people like Google obviously Facebook Twitter SpaceX the mm-hmm. sort of muskification and the bezoffication of the world is that where the foundations are
1: Absolutely the foundations are Bell Labs I mean I've spent certainly a lot of time talking with people at all those places not SpaceX so much but but at Google and and Microsoft and Facebook and To a large extent, they took their cue from Bell Labs, which was really the template for the great industrial laboratory. Mm. Now, that said, things are very different now. These are private companies, and Bell Labs was part of a kind of largely regulated public company, so it was a little bit different, and the timeframes are different, and uh, I think the pressures are different on these private companies, and the ambitions are smaller. They're not trying to plan the future of communications. They're trying to create new products so that they can really beat the competition yeah. And, yeah. and make and money. grow and please shareholders <laughs> yeah. and make money. Yeah,
0: It's interesting how sort of big corporations, sort of government corporations particularly, are seen as sort of lumbering and heavy. And actually, it's the private companies that are sort of nimble or perceived to be, I don't know whether it's true, perceived to be much more nimble and much more creative. One thinks of kind of NASA versus SpaceX, for example, Mm-hmm. And actually, Bell Lab was very much a kind of NASA of its day, I suppose, really, in terms of it was uh, put there by government.
1: Yeah, I think that that's probably a pretty good analogy. And that, like you said, I, I think the perception, you know, sometimes there's that kernel of truth that, you know, it's true that small companies can be nimble and don't have to worry about legacies. They don't have to worry about, you know, all this huge roles of employees. But I think also Bell Lab's and like NASA, too, you know, they did create small teams of people mm. to work on difficult problems. And when they wanted to move fast, they could. Yeah. And we talked about Voyager earlier, NASA's Voyager mission. And, and that was a big team of people. But really, they they did something pretty remarkable really, really within did. the course of just two years. And it's true that those companies could look to Bell Labs and sort of say, OK, what should we do? They could even visit it because Bell Labs was sort of, yeah, come see our lab. This is how we do things. But, you know, there was a more direct transfer of knowledge. For instance, you know, one of the main characters in my book, Mervyn Kelly, who created the modern Bell Laboratories, actually went to work as an advisor for NASA after he retired from Bell Labs. So, you know, he was bringing these ideas of how do you manage a modern industrial laboratory to NASA, and he also worked for IBM as well. So there was a kind of cross-pollination of ideas, but also of structures and how you kind of create innovation. The one thing I find really odd about all of
0: this is given what Bell Labs did, given what they produced, given their ethos, given the story of Bell Labs, why do we not know about Bell Labs? Why is it still such a kind of niche subject? You know, I've been talking, I'm doing a thing about Bell Labs. I'm like, what's Bell Labs? I'm like, it's Bell (laughs) Bell Labs? It's not a household name. Like, well, obviously Google's a household name because we're using their products all the time, but it seems to have kind of disappeared from the story of tech. And I'm not quite sure why.
1: Yeah. I think tech is a very future forward kind of uh, society, if we could call it, or, or culture. Mm. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I don't think people who work in technology necessarily think about long ago history. Mm. I was giving a talk once at Facebook to a really big crowd that was working. This was some years back. They worked on kind of the infrastructure of Facebook, which is really super complicated, and they're really trying to we're trying to build out the system that would kind of make you know Facebook work functionally. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, it kind of reminds me of those early days of AT&T and Bell Labs when they're trying to create this system that would work flawlessly. And afterwards, I kind of was leaving the talk and I was walking out of the auditorium and and one of these younger employees was outside in front. He's like, wow, that was just really interesting. I had no idea, you know. And, um, you know, he was in his 20s. He's just like, I had never heard of it. And, you know, he was a whiz-bang programmer for Facebook. And I think that's pretty indicative that You don't have to know technological history to work in technology. Uh, You don't have to know computer history to be an extraordinary coder. So that's one aspect of the question. I think the other sort of larger aspect is, okay, so you don't work in tech, but why don't we know about the origins of technology or, or Bell Labs? And I do think, you know, we live in a moment where we are very focused on the present. We're sort of flooded with information every day. We have this illusion that we're connected to everything because of Twitter and Facebook. And we know what's happening in the war in Ukraine. We know what's happening with California wildfires in the moment. Mm -hmm. That's a lot to process. I'm not even sure in terms of evolution, we can actually effectively process it. It's true. And actually, crikey, you know,
0: we mentioned Apollo earlier on, which is in living memory. And people are still kind of like, wait, did we go to the moon? I don't believe we went. You know, it's it's quite, (laughs) we have short attention spans. Hey, listen, you know, the fact that we can make this phone call and record this, and the Mm -hmm. fact that I can tell you, Rube Goldberg machine was the machine that I was looking for. You know, those chain reaction machines. The fact that I can Google that in the middle of a conversation with you, Mm -hmm. we can really put that down to Bell Labs originally, because we wouldn't have been able to have done that. Imagine a world without Bell Labs. I couldn't have told you that bit of information. Well, maybe we could have done. Somebody (laughs) else would have invented the transistor.
1: Sure. But that's a good point, too. A world without Bell Labs... Do innovations just happen anyway? Mm. I found myself thinking a lot about that too. You know, to what extent would the transistor have been invented anyway? Yeah. And that's an interesting question too. One point I think I make about Bell Labs and AT&T is earlier I said by being connected to the biggest company in the world, it had all these resources, it could hire the best people, it could do things, it had these sort of huge time horizons to create products. But it worked the other way too. You know, you could create something and then you could actually roll it out on this vast national scale because you had this. Oh, yeah, we have this new transistor. Let's try it. Let's put in the system. And that mattered quite a bit because they could manufacture it. They could keep making it better and better, which was really crucial, too. And they could share it as well, presumably with other companies. They
0: weren't kind of keeping this all to themselves and other companies, electronics companies would get hold of it.
1: That's right. I mean, because Bell Labs had a very kind of uh, fraught relationship with the federal government, they were always worried about the monopoly being broken up or being overly scrutinized. They sort of reached this point where they were forced to kind of license any new technology. So they had control of the phone system. They weren't really allowed to be in the computer business or anything. So if IBM or another computer company or transistor radio company wanted the transistor, which they did, they would pay a fee to Bell Labs and they would get trained in how to build transistors. And that was how that technology spread around.
0: And the rest is history. Mm. There we go. We're out of time. John, I thoroughly enjoy reading your book. It's such an enlightening book. It's a wonderful, not just about the history of Bell Labs, but actually the story of innovation and how innovation works and how it thrives. And it's a really, really good example of that. So thank you very, very much for joining me on the show and good luck with future projects. Good luck with your Voyager book. I'm looking forward to that. It's one of the great American stories, I think, Voyager. It's just terrific. It was a big part of my life for many years. Thanks, Dallas. I'll
1: watch your documentary today if I can. Yes, there you go. (laughs) Thank you very much. Oh, that was fun.
0: Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, John, for joining me. John's book, The Idea Factory, is the kind of company history that you will actually want to read. It's a terrific book. Uh, about an absolutely fascinating place that not enough people know about. But if you're interested in technology, if you're interested in innovation, then you need to know about Bell Labs and you should read John's book. Uh, by the way, the archives we played at the start of this show were courtesy of AT&T Archives and History Centre. Uh, and They've got an incredible archive of videos made by Bell Labs over the years. Now, if you've enjoyed today's show, please leave a rating, a glowing, glorious rating, obviously, and a beautiful review. It helps others discover the show. Coming up in September, I'm really excited because we're doing a little mini-series, a three-part series on the history of forensics, which is absolutely fascinating. Uh, Also, get in touch if you've got ideas you want me to explore, stories you want me to tell, things you want me to investigate. We'd love to put them on the list. Next episode, we are going back in time, way back in time, in fact, to the ancient world, to ancient Egypt, where I'll be exploring the mysteries of the pyramids. Who invented the pyramids? Where did they come from? While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive